Three years ago, an unspeakable horror gripped the town of Amityville. Now, this house of possession has new tenants. So this is Amityville. Hey, Marv, there must be something wrong with this place, huh? Just some minor repairs. And within this house, the past haunts the present. To the house. To the house. A past that will not die. It brought us here, Marvin. It? What is it? The house. Something about the house. It's been trying to communicate with ever since we got here. Even before in my dream. A past that holds an ancient curse that strikes the living. Amityville Curse lives on. Joining us on Moving Radio today is uh, a film historian. I know, I'm trying to class up the joint and bring in some really important smart people. And uh, he just happens to be a good friend. And his name is Jason Pohansky. JP, welcome back to Moving Radio. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Anytime we can get you. Uh, this would be, I think, our third time we're talking about films that you've done commentary on. And maybe like, I don't know, fifth or sixth in my like far too long history of doing this show, the show, that's for sure. So the film in in question that we're going to be talking about is The Amityville Curse. I know your interest has already peaked from the one word that's in the title, which is probably why they chose that, because it would pique people's interest. It's a vinegar syndrome release, but more specifically, it's through the Canadian International Pictures imprint. You can find this at the Lobby DVD shop like I did from our good friend Kevin Martin, or you can find it on the Vinegar Syndrome website. The Amityville Curse. Of course, we talk about this because it's a very, uh, you know, maybe slightly obscured, but deserves some love. Canadian uh, classic-ish, or at least cult classic, released in 1990, mostly via the home video market. And it was like the fifth in the series, I guess. Yet it's kind of ignored a lot in the history of this. So, which now probably has more series, sequels and children's of the corn has, which is a bajillion. I think they're at that. So talk to us about the origin of the Amityville curse and how this connects exploitation entry uh, into the series was born. Well, of course, this is being the fifth Amityville film. It does it does share a place with in the chrono chronology of it and the DNA of it. Like where we're at now, we've got Amityville films coming out of left, right, everywhere. They're in space. They're toilet. They're all kinds of things. But with this film, still it it still has ties to the actual house. So of course, if we're not familiar with Amityville. In general, it was based on a book. The original film was a low-budget horror film that did incredibly well, and it was about a haunted house, and it was alleged to have been based on real events that were documented in this novel. Well, it wasn't a novel. It was a nonfiction book is ultimately what I think, I believe it was supposed to be. So off of that, they made four, four films, and they were all tied in with the same... They basically were all being... The rights were being paid to the family that had come up with this this story that had had these events happen in the first film to them it gets really complicated and it's been a while since i've been 
deep into it, so I'm not going to go through all three of them. It's okay. But That's they... why they get the movie, JP, <laughs> so they can hear everything. Exactly. Right? Look, you got to right. tease yeah, them yeah. a little bit. It'll be easy to do. <laughs> um, by the time we get to this one, the fifth one, it's based on a book that was written by Hans Holzer. And Hans Holzer was one of the original investigators of the original Amityville horror. Um, and he'd written a few books on it as well. But he'd written, because of rights and conflicts, and he wanted to keep his name attached to it, he'd written a nonfiction book based on the house. And that was Amityville Curse. The rights were acquired by Michael Kruger, who was a regional filmmaker in Denver, Colorado area. He'd actually bought the screenplay written by Holzer and wasn't too impressed with it, so he rewrote it and he was trying to get this film off the ground and used the name value to tie into the other four films. In the meantime, he actually passed away and the rights were acquired by Tom Barry in Montreal and his company Allegro, who Tom Barry would ultimately be the director of this film. Um, and he did a few more rewrites and with it moving to, to Canada as a production, they obviously couldn't get the house. So they changed it to a different house. It's basically one number off from 112, I think, was the address of the original Amityville house. So it is now 111. It's another haunted house story. They were more inspired by Gothic hauntings than the flavor of the other four films. And that's what you get. That's what it becomes. So the, the initial thrust of the film is that these group of friends that knew each other in college, four of them, I believe, because property is so expensive in New York, buy this house in Long Island and move in and go to renovate it. And that's when all the creepy stuff starts happening. And I mean, you kind of mentioned already that one of the things that maybe might take someone back is that the house itself, you know, whether you did it in the original one or not, is kind of iconic. But really, it's it's about any house in some ways. It's just that house kind of gets burned in our brain through several sequels and a remake and then well there, there's things, but... there's a lot of uniqueness to the house too because it's got yeah. these two picture it's the, the attic has these two picture windows yeah. looks like, look eyes, like giant basically. eyes and it's yeah. a almost like a face so yeah. it's like yeah when you see the first film it's burnt in your brain it's in the cover of every film all the marketing all the posters it's like the house yeah, yeah. and i mean even this house i mean still tries to take that idea of like trying to incorporated almost as like a character in the film right even though it may not look how we assume it has or that's been you know beat into our brains so tell us a little bit about how uh tom barry the director and michael kruger make the house kind of transcend maybe our own assumptions about it and how it kind of is integrated directly into the story this film's different than the other films in that the haunting of the original house was an angry spirit that was essentially trying to get revenge on the people that have that on events that had occurred and they were it was trying to to torment the people in the house and gain possession of the people in the house now the house the house itself is becomes a character because of the ghost haunting it and because we never you can't physically see the apparition the house becomes its representative. So that's really how it was done in the first four movies and it, it continued in this movie. There's a difference with this movie though in that the apparition is actually, while it comes across frightening and scary, it's really just trying to warn the people in the house 
or it's a lot like the changeling if you've seen that film mm -hmm. where the apparition is is someone that was wronged and they're trying to tell their story through haunting and that's what's happening that's what happens with the amityville curse and it's also tied into the rectory next door so there's a church next door and the events that happen there and when you see it all in context everything the house is sort of doing to the people in the house is to warn the people in the house and to sort of tell their story. We're at Docket Today with Jason Bohanski. We're discussing the Amityville Curse. It's part of the Canadian International Pictures imprint. You can get it on uh, Vin uh, Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray, uh, or you can pick it up at the Lobby DVD shop, just like I did from my good friend Kevin Martin. You know, one of the things that stuck out for me in this film is uh, I love Kim Coates in lots of different things that he do. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't remember this film. This is the one where I was like, uh, Minefield that we talked about earlier, I'd, I'd seen that. But this one, I was like, I don't, this completely escaped me. So to see Young Coates, I was like, oh man, I love that guy. He just, he just knows how to work scenes. Um, what sticks up for you as kind of like the charming or endearing thing about this film that, that, you know, people should pick it up, even though it doesn't have like direct links to the family in those original Amityville films, or even the original house itself. What stuck up for you? Well, certainly like Coates' performance is, is, yeah. is great to watch in it. For me, it's, it's, it's a horror film, and it's taking sort of elements of that era that I really enjoyed about horror films and, and working them really well. The cinematography is pretty stellar, and it's, it's full of a lot of style, not Evil Dead style, not Sam Raimi kind of style, but it's it's a good example of sort of a high stylistic Canadian horror film production when a lot of them, the cinematography is beautiful. And it's a nice little, again, a nice little sort of thriller. It's really, by the time you get to the end, it's a twist and a mystery that gets solved. And there is something psychological. It's been... To be quite honest, Chris, it has mm -hmm. been a long time since we recorded our commentary for it. So <laughs> yeah, the details okay. escape me, but that's all right. Look, I, the, I the do remember being very well, I do remember being very impressed by the psychological aspects that that you don't really feel are there until you get to that final twist in the movie. Mm -hmm. And then it all sort of comes together. And it's something that we actually the the better of Canadian horror films do and they do it in a way that you don't really see that being it's it's under the surface you can watch the movie on the surface level and never get it but there's this thought that goes into these films on a psychological level even though a lot of these films were ma being made for the box office to you know make yeah. some money off home video which was very lucrative at the time and maybe a couple steps ahead of that uh, the directive video sequels which became very popular throughout the the late 90s and early 2000s yeah. for sure yeah you know let's talk a little bit about you i mean what's your process in kind of getting ready to do projects like this like you did the mask from 1961 another canadian classic uh minefield which you talked about before from 89 um tell us about how you prepare for this before you go into the studio are you like are you uh, super studious and have like a stack of notes 
Uh, are you just relying upon your years of experience? Uh, are you just like, I've got, I ooze with charm. So this is easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the oozing with charm. That's I don't know. I think, I think you've got at least a, you leak charm at the very oh, at times. At times it is a real slog to do. Yeah. To do the actual narrative. Do we call it narration? The actual commentary actually speaking yeah. over it. Um, it's changed over the years. I mean, at this point, so like I would say there, I've done a few on my own, but 90% mm -hmm. I do with Paul Korup of Exploitation. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of have a system at this point and depending on how busy we are, because this isn't our full-time gig. So we usually, we usually get asked to do these. Um, sometimes we've both seen them. Sometimes one of us hasn't. So the first thing we do is we watch it. Usually the other one will give the recommendation going, we have, we should do this one. It's, it's a good film or it's an interesting film, or I think there's lots we can talk about. Um, and so we'll watch it, obviously, if we haven't seen it, or even if we have seen it, usually it's been a while. Um, and then we do some research. We both go off and do our own little thing. And then we come together and we usually, we used to meet in a bar all the time and just chat it through and talk about what we one person's found versus the other person and kind of try to come up with a a through line and and who's going to sort of focus on what and then we go off and we do some more writing and then uh then we usually we used to just get together in a room and and slug it out we kind of we kind of write as we go in a way like obviously we plan it out and we have, we, I started out with stacks of notes, but lately pandemic happened. We've been doing things over Zoom. So now I have a stack of, of files on my computer that I can't sit through, just like my <laughs> notes. It was like too many notes. So we kind of take our time when we're doing it and, and put it together that way. We know what we want to talk about. We just don't always know where we're going to land with it. We don't script it out we use our scripting time when we're recording. So it, it takes us longer than the length of the film to record it. And then a lot of times I'll go in and do some editing just to sort of clean things up. And sometimes we'll add things we missed. Yeah. So do you even cut like your own commentary tracks and then you submit them? Or is it just like, we're just giving you everything? We cut them that way. They can't use anything. We don't want them to, <laughs> you know, if we <laughs> made a mistake, stuff. we're able to clean that up. Yeah. That's, that's our, you know, quality control check. Yeah. is me going through and then then i usually i cut it because that's my background um mm -hmm. and then i throw it at paul and paul takes a listen to it to make sure that i didn't miss anything and then we send it off that's the nuts and bolts of how we do this thing for me i look at it as it's like i love having that extra conversation on top of it particularly if you watch alone sometimes right at home mm -hmm. uh and so it's great to hear not only insight and some context because i know at times some people will think about like oh god so boring and i'm like no yeah sometimes when people are bored doing it if they're like this was the paycheck i made the money it hasn't come out yet i don't know what this film is like and they're not giving you anything right mm -hmm. but with you know 30 years move past the film and you've got all this context for yourselves. I think it's, it's a, it's a fascinating way to really add some extra value to the watching experience for me, at least yeah. in what you guys are doing. So I love it. We want to give a little bit of commentary on our, 
perceptions of the film and you know a little bit of that kind of insight and into sort of more sort of a scholarly approach to how it was made and just but really i think both of us what we're most interested in and our background in this type of thing is the history so we do fill it up with a lot of history because that's sort of what fascinates us about it tell us a little bit of like where where for you were the roots of these kind of films for you right and not necessarily necessarily like haunted house films but just maybe horror or genre films like what was a, a little prairie boy named jp out in the uh, the large fields of your family house <laughs> what was like what struck you what pulled you in like for me it was the dawn of vhs and being kind of isolated living in fort mcmurray as a junior high kid that really kind of like locked me in to that stuff what was it for you what was the hook into genre films it's interesting that we're talking about the amityville curse yeah on this one because i grew up on a farm i grew up on a farm that we didn't actually farm i wasn't really a farm boy my, my father had a job in town um, and the farm was rented out, but I did grow up in a very small community, relatively isolated. The closest theater was about an hour away. So, you know, when I was at about grade four or five, I started reading a lot, very vor voraciously. And there was this series of books that were on phenomenon and like, I mean, ghosts was one of them. Right, and hauntings and that's that's really was my gateway in, into horror because i started with that and then when i ran out of books in a small library so it didn't take long i moved on to movies and it started with like universal classics and stuff and so that really sort of started my love of, of horror films um and i really didn't get to see a lot until i could drive ultimately so i could drive to the theater and go see the theater we didn't have a VHS deck until we didn't have a VHS deck. I don't think before I moved away from home, we ever got a VHS mm. deck. So it was by the time I was 16, cause that's when I learned how to drive in Alberta, it was off to the local theater every week. Um, and then as I got older, it was like going to the repertoire cinemas and then renting. And I always loved horror. I loved horror for the, the style and the cinematography of it for the effects. I, I was never a big slasher fan, but I liked films with creatures a lot. I liked the Nightmare on Elm Street series, not so much for the slasher element, but for the creativity and dream element of those, those slasher kills. And then I started making films of my own and kind of went away from horror for a while, tried to like more art house, more serious stuff. And I started writing for Room Morgue about a decade later and just sort of embraced it again. That's where I am. But I mean, I like all kinds of films uh, and a lot of the stuff that's being done by Canadian International Pictures isn't genre, uh, mm -hmm. isn't horror genre at least. Um, and they fit right in with sort of our tastes, my tastes, Paul's tastes. Uh, our guest today on Moving Radio has been Jason Pohanski. We've been talking. He's a film historian, people. I don't know if you know this. He's got uh, he's got one of these cards in his wallet that he carries around, and it says Cost on there, "Pretty penny, pretty penny to print those." They're embossed beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, we've been talking about the Amityville course. Of course, you can get it through Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray like I did if you want. Uh, I picked up my copy at the uh, Lobby DVD shop from Kevin Martin here in Edmonton. But if you happen to be somewhere else or it's just easier for you, you can pick it up at the Vinegar Syndrome website along with many other CIP Canadian International Pictures titles. Uh, JP, thank you so much for your time today. It's always good to talk to you and You're great welcome. to talk about film. I can't yeah. wait for the next one. Is there it's next good. one? Can you say anything? Um, I think at one point we were talking about the Danny Arcan trilogy. Yeah. Is that so going to be Paul you? and I, we've already recorded for one of the films. Yeah. All right. There we go. I'm um, ordering my copy. And we have, we have a few more lined up. Fantastic. We haven't recorded those yet. I don't. I don't think I can talk about those yet. Okay, yeah. we'll stay mum on those. But uh, you're going to hear more from this guy in the future on this show. <laughs>